Well, good. Uh, it's four o'clock by this clock and two minutes after by that one. So we're going to start with this clock and end with this one, I think. So uh, I'm Steve Noblet. Um, for those of y'all that thought I was Steve Saint, that's I'm sure his workshop is sold out, and that's why you're here. So, uh, but I'm glad you're here. Um, I am the executive director for Christian Community Health Fellowship, or CCHF. And how many of you that are not sitting on the front row here have ever heard of CCHF before? So a handful of folks. Okay, so CCHF is um, uh, it's an organization that uh, envisions a movement of God's people who choose daily to bring healing to marginalized communities in our nation and to do it in the name of Christ. And so you can think of us in a lot of ways as the domestic medical missions organization here at this conference. And so we have about uh, somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, clinics around the country, around the United States, that are affiliated with CCHF and are doing this type of work, at basically serving the medically underserved and the poor uh, with health care in the name of Jesus. So I get louder when I turn over here and softer when I turn over here. Yeah, that was my knee. <laughs> no. All right, so let me let me just ask a couple of quick questions. How many of you guys, how many folks here are students? Raise your hand. Terrific. Okay, and how many of you are, uh, you either work for a missions organization or you're currently doing missions overseas on a semi-permanent basis? Raise your hand. So... A couple of a few of you guys, that's great. And how many of y'all are headed that direction? So there's a few, okay. And then how many of anybody here doing work with domestic missions, medical missions? A few, okay, great. And I know you guys, so these are really good people. Y'all should get to know them like I do. But tell me who you guys are with and what you are doing. The Refuge, awesome clinic, wonderful clinic. Tell me the name of the girl, of the lady that runs Rachel. it. Rachel, that's who I was trying to think of a little while ago. She's the most energetic human being I've ever met in my life. So I, 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 go, to, go sit down and have breakfast at this great breakfast place where Calipari sometimes eats. And um, with Rachel about once every two years, and that charges you up for the rest of your life. And so... That's terrific. That's great. I'm I'm uh, I'm going to come visit you guys this year. We've we we do some work with some other groups in Indianapolis with Raphael and some other groups like that. So, yeah. And who else was it that had their hand raised a minute ago? Domestic. Yeah. Uh, Lawndale in, in Chicago, largest uh, faith-based clinic in the United States. So. And then we've got some guys from Jericho Road in uh, Buffalo. And how do you want to describe yourself, Matt? <laughs> I'm a resident and going into an underserved clinic in the city in Indianapolis. In Indianapolis, another partner in Indianapolis there, so that's great. Well, good. Let's, uh, let's just open in prayer, and then, and then we're going to blow through this pretty quickly. <sighs> Father, it's just such an honor to be here today. And to, uh, Lord, we just say for whatever other 
things that have been going on in our minds. Right now, God, we just drop everything and we say we are here for one thing, and that is to hear from you. And God, we just right now, uh, we just tune our hearts to you and we ask, Lord, for you to just speak clearly to us, God. We're here for direction, for encouragement. We're here, God, to be equipped. We want you to sharpen us, Lord. We want you to uh, pair us up uh, and, and help us connect, Lord, in meaningful relationships that will help bring you glory and extend your fame to the ends of the earth. And, uh, Father, we just dedicate ourselves to that. And, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, I just dedicate this time, this particular workshop, uh, to your glory. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak through each of us here and to each of us here, including me. And we say this and we pray this for your glory alone in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, a wildly successful workshop here, in my mind, would be for you to leave with this conviction. Uh, and that is that what we do as healthcare professionals, and particularly as Christian healthcare professionals, should be incredibly distinct. It should be something that really stands out and is a sign and a wonder to the rest of the medical community around us and the world around us. We should not be like everybody else. Um, CCHF started 30-something years ago with a, uh, a group of young docs straight out of residency that, that went down to a little town in, uh, uh, in the Mississippi Delta and started a health clinic there uh, because there wasn't a doctor that would see black people in this town. And they started this health clinic, and every day they used to, at the end of the day, sit down on the front porch and drink their iced tea out of a sweet tea, by the way, out of a mason jar, and would ask the question, what would Jesus do? And for about the first 60 days or so, they were very content believing that what Jesus would do would be to move to New Hebron, Mississippi and start a health clinic. Yes! And then after about 60 days into that, they were like, uh, what would he have done today? <laughs> How would he have handled this situation? And they began... Uh, you know, just talking and thinking about uh, health care in a completely different way. And the question they began asking themselves, and this is a question we continue to ask 30 years later, is isn't there a difference between being a doctor who's a Christian and practicing Christian medicine? Is there such a thing as Christian medicine? And if there is, what does that look like? And should it be distinct from other things? And and that kind of thing. So that's one of the things that, I, that would be a successful day today is if we would come away with that, uh, at least asking those kind of questions. And then the second thing is to help us shift in our mind uh, what our role is in the whole realm of an industry of health care. Uh, because typically this is kind of how most docs and people in the health professionals sort of see themselves. You all know Milton here, right, one of my favorite movies of all time. I like watching it on TV because they take the cursing out. But, uh, you know, we sometimes in, in the healthcare industry and mechanism is so vast and so huge that, frankly, you get trained in medical school or nursing school to just sort of fit in as one of the cogs in the wheel. And you may not feel like you're in a place of great significance. And, frankly, I hear people all the time tell me why they can't do Christian medicine. It's because, well, I work at a hospital or because I work in a big private practice or I work in a clinic that doesn't allow us to do this or that, and, um, and this is just the way it's done. You can't change it. And the, and the answer to that is that we are not, first and foremost, healthcare professionals. We are, first and foremost, ambassadors of a new government. We are ambassadors of Christ and his kingdom. It's an alternative government, and it's a government that is, frankly, 
that stands in contrast with all other governments on the, on the planet. And ultimately, it's the only one that's going to be left standing. And so the success or failure of every system out there and every component of culture that's out there is going to ultimately depend on how it lines up with the government that we as ambassadors of Christ represent. And so I want us to begin to, to think through... Um, to think of ourselves not as participants in the healthcare industry, but as stewards of the healthcare industry with a commission from the Lord Jesus Himself to make it a footstool for His feet and His servant. And so I want to start with this passage of scripture to sort of frame our time together. This is a, 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 a beautiful vision. It's it, um, from Micah chapter 4 that's also almost verbatim from Isaiah chapter 2. So it shows up under two prophets verbatim. That's sort of like a two exclamation points at the end of the sentence. Um, but I, let's just let me just read this to you out loud. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, "Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths." Let's just say that together. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Get, let that ring in your ears. Let's say it one more time. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And then it goes on and it says, The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. I love that it doesn't say, because Steve Noblet was faithful, or because we came up with a really good plan to implement this project. It's just this. The Lord Almighty has spoken. All nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is a vision of an inevitability in God's mind. God never has a thought that he doesn't speak and perform. God is not disjointed that way. When he establishes his will, and this is his will, his will is to have a time in which his people will be a community of people who live under the willing acknowledgement of his government, of his benevolent lordship. And a time in history in which the people that do not know God will search out the people that do know God uh, because, they're, because we're living as citizens of his and, uh, and ambassadors of, of his kingdom on earth. And we will be the answer. We're, we'll be exemplifying in our lives and in our practices the, the answer to Jesus' prayer as best we can. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so... This day is going to come when the community and culture that we produce will present such a contrast to the world around us that we will be respected, sought out, and studied. And the nations will come with this ringing thing I want you to hear in your ears. Teach us his way so that we can walk in your paths. Now, if we believe this, we can expect that there's going to be a generation. And I don't know why not ours. You know, to be honest with you, I think the only issue is faith and obedience. Why not, why not our generation? But there will be a generation... When the people, uh, when, when people that don't know God will come to God's people and search us out and say, hey, you guys are doing things different than we're doing them. 
and frankly, your outcomes are really good. Would you show us what you're doing so that we can do that too? And just break that down into into sort of bite-sized chunks. They're going to come and say, hey, guys, you treat your wives different than we do. Explain that. Show us how to do that. You raise your children different than, than we do. Uh, you relate to your neighbors differently. You approach your work differently. You run your businesses and uh, with different standards and goals. You practice health care differently. Now, we're seeing that in little bite-sized pieces from time to time. Back in the early 90s, I had the opportunity to study for a year in England. And while I was there, Namibia, which was a newly formed nation, sent a delegation of cabinet ministers to a group of Christians in England, and they sat down with them and said, would you show us how to write our constitution and our laws in a way that resemble the principles that you guys see in the kingdom of God? Okay, now I don't know how it's all working out in Namibia. I've never been there, to be honest with you. But I was so glad that those guys that they came to visit that day were not caught off guard by that. They said, yeah, we'd love to sit down and show you what the principles of the kingdom of God are and how they might translate into your nation's constitution. Now, the day is coming, I'm telling you, and it's coming bit by bit where people come and show up and say, so explain how the kingdom of God applies in health care. I was in a meeting um, at, a, at a Christian university uh, a few months back, and the guy that I was meeting with happened to have a friend who was the chief medical officer for a local hospital in Chattanooga. It's a big hospital. It's the biggest hospital in Chattanooga. And, um, uh, and so I'm explaining to the guy at the university what CCHF is about and just telling him how I got involved in it and why I'm committed to this organization. It's because... It's because we are a group of people that get the kingdom of God. And frankly, if we don't even have it theologically right, practically we're doing the right stuff. We just need a theology to back up what we're doing. And so I felt like that was my calling. And as I was sharing about this whole concept of the kingdom of God having an influence on Christian on, on medicine and on the possibility that there is something called Christian medicine, this guy that's the chief medical officer at this big hospital jumps up out of his chair and starts pacing around the room and he says, our hospital's in trouble. We've got clinics out there that nobody wants to work at and nobody wants to come to. And the answer is so clear to me right now. It's the kingdom of God. So this is the answer. And I'm a Christian. I've never thought of it before now. Help me understand how we can apply the kingdom of God in our systems here. And I have to be honest with you, I was caught off guard. I was... uh Let's have a conference. I'll get some people together. We'll think this thing through. Let's pray through it. And so we're doing all that, you know. But the bottom line is we need to be a people who think bigger than just the patient that's in front of us. And we need to be thinking more about being stewards of an institution that's important in the culture of our nation and in the culture of every nation that you're a part of. So that's what we want to do today. That's what, that's that's kind of what we're, we're trying to do. Um, let me see. I think I talked too long. Hello. There we go. So what is Christian health care? What makes Christian health care Christian? Okay, well, what makes anything Christian? So I looked up, I just Googled an image, and it was like, what makes anything Christian? And this is one of the first things that came up. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, 
And I think it makes a really great point, and that is just because it's got the name Christian on it doesn't mean that it is Christian, right? The subject is not what makes something Christian or what makes anything Christian. What makes something Christian is not the subject. It's the submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's the, it's the answer to, that's the answer for Christian music. It's the answer for Christian bookstores, if there is such a thing. Or, you know, we, we have so many Christian things that we've, we've created our own little bubble, and I'm not sure that Jesus would own very much of that, to be honest, you know. Um, I realize where I'm standing, and I realize I need to be careful here. But, uh, but the bottom line is, what makes something Christian is its intentional submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a positive, redemptive Lordship of Christ that makes it Christian. And, um, and claiming the name of Christ without acknowledging His Lordship is little more than name-dropping. Christian health care um, happens when we deliberately seek to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And I propose that we need to hallow his name. To, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done begins with our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That should be our goal, is to hallow the name of Christ in all that we do. And we need to do that on, on several different levels. As individuals, we need to be thinking, how does, the, how does my life and practice as a doc or as a nurse or whatever I'm doing, community health person, how does that reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, but more than just as individuals, we create organizations. I appreciate Oz Guinness that talks about one of the things that men do, that people do, when they, as they begin to serve Christ, as they begin to build something that resembles the kingdom of God. And one of those things, are, one of those important things is organizations. And so corporately, we need to be thinking about corporately, how does my organization or my department reflect the Lord, the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, and this is one of the things I'm trying to get us all to begin to recognize, is nobody else is going to do it except us. We have to think systemically. We have to think, how does the institution of medicine look like in the kingdom of God? Well, guess what? There's no sickness and dying when Jesus finally returns, right? But let's just say that theologically there's a progressive sort of move in that direction. And the day before Jesus returns, what's it supposed to look like? What is God going to be pleased with with a healthcare system? And how can we, and let's just be honest, if we, if we begin to think that way, if we begin to recognize that there is something, a healthcare system that God's pleased with, and there's things about the healthcare system that's there now that God's not pleased with, we have to understand that we are either part of the problem or we're part of the solution and there's no middle ground. And so we want to be intentional about being part of the solution. We don't want to continue to pour our time and energy into, a, into the brokenness of the system. We are given the ministry of reconciliation, and one of our jobs is to not only rec- reconcile people to Christ, but to reconcile systems to the kingdom. Can you all get that? Are you willing to buy into some of that with me a little bit? So... Personally, we need to be thinking about how, how are things are individually as individuals, you know, in terms of corporately and, and our organizations, how we are going together to influence and, and affect those organizations to resemble the kingdom and then institutionally. Um, there's also two dimensions to Christian healthcare that we have to think about. Number one is mission. Okay, our mission in our own personal life and our organizations and institutionally. The mission, uh, we need to make sure that our purpose aligns with our calling to serve and to disciple. Those are the things that we're called to do, serve and disciple. 
And then the other thing is character, mission and character. And so with these three things in mind, okay, on three different levels, individually, organizationally, and systemically, and in terms of these two sort of big giant areas of mission and character, those are the things we've got to wrestle with as we think through what Christian healthcare is. Now, um, I'm really blessed today because uh, at this conference sort of draws a lot of really great folks in, and, and uh, we've got a number of CCHF clinics that are present here, and one of them happens to be some folks from uh, Buffalo, New York, from Jericho Road Family Practice. And I thought rather than me set stand up here, who's never been a doctor and never run a clinic, lecture to you about how it ought to be done, maybe it would be helpful if we had the testimony of a group from Buffalo to just stand up and share their story, how they, why they started a Christian clinic, what it's about, and if you don't tell, talk about everything I want you to talk about, I'll ask questions in a few minutes, okay? So this is Dr. Julie Thurlow and Brett Lawton. Julie is a, a family practice doc, right? Yes. At, uh, at Jericho Road Family Practice, and Brett is the practice overall guru, head honcho, big kahuna over there. So there you go. All right, so I'm going to ask you guys to – here, I'm going to let you do all that. Hello? Is that on? Maybe not. Hello? Is that good? Okay. So my name is Julie Thurlow. I'm a family doc in Buffalo, New York. Um, Born and bred there. Left for Cincinnati to do my residency. They have a great international health program if you're looking for residencies. and came to work at Jericho Road Family Practice right out of residency. Uh, Steve kindly asked us to share a little bit of the Jericho Road Family Practice story and, as a practice, how we honor Jesus. Um, it's a bit of a challenge to stand up here and say that because it feels a lot like bragging or, you know, we're doing the right thing. We fail on a regular basis, um, but we try really hard to serve Jesus and to love people and the people that uh, he sends our way. It's also a little bit of a challenge for me because I wasn't there in the beginning. I know the story, but I've only been there for five years. Jericho Road Family Practice began when Myron and Joyce Glick heard and responded to God's call. And God called them to start a medical practice on the west side of Buffalo, serving the poor and anybody who came through the doors. And if you ever hear Dr. Glick speak, he'll always talk about serving the least of these. It has never been easy. It's still not easy. Um, When Dr. Glick started the practice, he was straight out of residency with a young family. Um, You know, student loans. He had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with my kids? Is my wife going to work? How am I going to pull this all together? With the help of the Mennonite Church, um, CCHF, and UB Family Medicine, um, he got the practice off the ground. And when he first started, he was moonlighting so he'd actually make a salary because the practice wasn't making any money yet. In fact, the first week they were open, there were three patients. We don't have that problem anymore. (laughs) Um, Along the way, Jericho Road Family Practice has experienced growth, first adding a physician assistant and then another doctor. And then Paul Violanti, a nurse practitioner who was working in the city, heard about Myron and said, hey, I'm going to come work with you. (laughs) And that's pretty much Paul for you. Um, Each step of the way, God has brought along the right people at the right time. And this is my little sales pitch. We need more of the right people at this time. (laughs) So we're hiring. Um, 
I have been with Jericho Road since 2005, and it has been a very interesting, blessing, growing experience, opportunity to serve. Um, it's been amazing. Um, we have been consistently very busy. Buffalo is the second poorest city in the United States, and there are very few physicians that still work in the city serving the poor. There's been a big exodus of people going out to the burbs. Um, access is really difficult. When I moved back home to Buffalo, I actually couldn't find a doctor in the city of Buffalo for myself, and I had real insurance. Um, Jericho Road partners with Journeys and Refugee Resettlement Program, and so a large part of our population is refugee. There's actually four refugee resettlement agencies in Buffalo, and somebody asked me once, why are there four in Buffalo? And I kind of joke that nobody really wants to live there. Buffalo is a great place to live. Um, <laughs> so let's go Buffalo. That's why he's wearing the Sabres jacket. <laughs> so through Journey's End, patients um, get their initial health screening uh, through Dr. Glick on Refugee Night and then become patients automatically in our practice. And it's been great to have that linkage, and it's unfortunate that the three other agencies don't have a linkage that works as well in terms of getting refugees integrated into the healthcare system. And of course, now I hit my bump. As a Christian family practice, we try to serve our patients with the love of Christ. Um, for me, that particularly mean, means paying attention to cultural differences. With over 50, 60 languages spoken in our office, which means over 60 cultures and different expectations, um, that's really challenging. But I wanted to share one story um, about how cultural differences and learning them has helped with healthcare. Um, I've traveled a bit. I've been in 20 countries. I should know better. But <laughs> about two or three years into practice, um, Salado, who is a woman in the, uh, the Somali community, invited me to one of my patient's baby showers. And I said, great. And I ran out to the outlet mall, and I bought a cute little outfit and a teddy bear, and I wrapped it up, and I showed up for the shower on time. First mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and very politely, Salado took the gift and hid it in a back bedroom. <laughs> Second mistake. And so I, I sat and I listened and I learned. I helped prepare the meal a little bit, and we sat down and we had a feast. And after the meal, they put the patient in the middle of the room, and 20 or 30 Somali Muslim women started praying for her. And I was shocked. Oh, a baby shower where you're praying for this woman. And they prayed for her that she would have a safe delivery, that her baby would be healthy, and that she'd be able to have a vaginal delivery. Now, we had been having trouble with the nurses. Um, when our patients come into labor and delivery, they want them to sign their consent for their transfusion, their C-section, take care of the baby, take care of the mom, vaginal delivery. And that's very confusing to a refugee, someone who doesn't speak English, maybe not even read and write in their own language. And the nurses would get very angry at our patients because they didn't want to sign things they didn't understand. And they were in labor and in pain. Um, and it wasn't until I actually went to this baby shower and, and learned firsthand, sitting down having a meal with people, that for these Somali women, having a baby and going through the pain of labor is how they believe that they connect with their child. And they're actually afraid that if they don't go through that pain, that they won't love their child. And so by sitting and learning and coming to that understanding, 
I could then go back to my partners and say, hey, guess what? <laughs> it's not just about not wanting a C-section. It's, it's something much deeper than that. And then to be able to go back and share with labor and delivery nurses, it's, it's begun to build a foundation of understanding and respect where it was just the frustration of the system needing to get its papers signed. Um, and so for me, that's, that's part of being a Christian and serving God and, and loving my patients. Um, one of the challenges that we face as providers uh, working with the poor or underserved or however you want to politically correct label people who have less resources um, is dealing with patients who abuse drugs. Um, anybody who's in residency or been through residency or in practice now knows about drug seekers. Those people who come in and that they want their lower tab. <laughs> um, and it's really challenging not to get angry or frustrated um, working with those patients. And so one of the challenges as a Christian practice is the struggle that I have with Dr. Glick. I'm more on the law side of things, and he's much more on the grace side of things. And so we have um, been good working together, him pulling me more towards the grace side, me making sure that he actually cuts off people after the third or fourth time that they've abused the system um, in terms of loving patients but not enabling them. Um, Steve also asked us to talk on the, the culture of the practice, what it's like to work where we work. Um, it's an amazing place to come to work. Um, being able to work with fellow believers who have a common goal and a common mission is just something you don't see in the secular world. Um, and so when we come together, um, it's awesome to encourage each other, um, to see our nurses checking in on each other. Um, I've got one particular nurse who's busy and ordering things and sometimes gets pulled away, and I'll walk out of my room and go, Deb? <laughs> and I hear Aster's voice from another corner, what do you need? And, and where people are helping each other out. Um, it's not, well, that's her work, I'm not going to do it. With the providers, you know, if somebody's got nothing to do, they check the other people's schedules to make sure, well, who can I see to get them caught up? Um, and so that kind of teamwork is something that you always hope for, but it's really amazing to be a part of it. Um, and one of the things that really helps solidify the practice, I think, as, as a Christian practice and helps us keep our focus on serving Christ and serving our patients is that we have monthly staff devotionals. And those are not always met, led by necessarily Dr. Glick, who's the founder of the practice, or Brett, or any specific one person. But those are opportunities for us to come together and reflect again on God's word, reflect again on why we're doing this. Um, and not to lose sight in the middle of trying to get the work done um, of what we are trying to do for the kingdom. So with that, I'm going to pass this off to Brett. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here and to see so many people who want to love Jesus cross-culturally and um, use their skills and talents and abilities and um, in that endeavor. And I, my role is like totally on the business end. I'm not really supposed to meet the patients. However, I, I, I lived in the neighborhood and I've um, met a lot of people and also before coming to Buffalo served on the mission field. And I feel like as much as any of my time, um, two years 
plus living in Mexico um, did I have an opportunity to reach people. I do now, and um, I, I also have made friends with a really great Somali family, and um, they, the father was killed in the uprising, and there's four kids and a single mom now trying to make her way, and they're also Dr. Thurlow's patients, but um, I had an incident where um, the, one of the boys fell off of the porch and was hurt, and um, they called the doctor's office, but or they called me before they even called to make an appointment as a family member, and, um, and so, like, I, I just feel like our witness, our, our being there, our being available, our showing the love of Christ every day and doing it in a quality way is how we do this. And we're striving to meet um, all sorts of um, excellent standards. We're about two weeks away from applying to the National Committee for Quality Assurance to become a patient-centered medical home, which means that we're implementing a lot of um, quality activities. And just because we serve 70% Medicaid patients and 11% 11% uninsured patients and uh, less than 50% people who speak English as their first language or as a, at a language at all and have full-time Burmese. We are providing quality health care to the poor and the, under, the medically underserved in Buffalo and um, the people that God loves. We have um, uh, the... Uh, the hospital where we do our deliveries asking us, how do you, uh, years and years have gone by where we've treated the patients and now they're coming to us and say, how do you work with these refugees? So we feel like we're being a light to the medical community and making a difference that way. We've um, can't, we've petitioned down at the county, at the county health department when they decided to close because of budget cuts, um, a number of clinics. So we're um, getting into advocacy. Um, Dr. Glick and I went to um, the uh, um, Healthcare for All rally in Washington um, on a wonderful all-night bus trip that I highly recommend or something. Uh, and, um, and I feel like every day, everyone at our at our practice has an opportunity to love Jesus and to show um, the people around who he brings to us who don't always feel love right here in America. And um, God is bringing them to us. We're, Buffalo is receiving about 2,500 refugees each year. Um, and we at the practice are turning away 50 to 100 patients a week um, because we just don't have the capacity to serve them. And so if I might make a blatant pitch, we could use your help if you are considering um, working internationally. We're a HIPSA site, and we would um, welcome anyone who would be interested to come and work with us in any capacity. So um, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, for sharing the spotlight with us. Okay, the question, I'm going to repeat it for the tape, but the question was, how are you guys viable financially? So, there's a, a few factors. We, um, medic, uh, the New York State Medicaid rate is slightly higher, the, it's a, a slightly higher reimbursement. 
um, but we're very efficient, very painfully lean organization, and um, our patients, as much as we show the love of Jesus, they don't feel like we love them when we can only answer about 50% or 60% of our phone calls, but we have to be that lean to, to keep to keep in business, and it's an excellent question, and it's challenging, and we're actually moving to become a federally qualified health center to help with our with the finances, so um, that's... There you go. So we, we've got, CCHF has, out of about 300 clinics, 250 to 300 clinics, there's about uh, 40 or so that are currently federally qualified health centers, and you would be shocked. They are the most evangelistic health centers that we've got. They share, the, they give the Bible out, they share scripture, they pray with their patients, and um, and they are receiving virtually no pushback at all from the federal government for doing that, as long as they're providing excellent medicine. Um, so there's there are ways. Put it this way: the government wants these kind of people served and covered, and they're willing to pay Christians to do it. And still allow us to be Christian. So um, I, I know that, that's, that that really cuts across some sort of, uh, I guess, predisposed ideas that a lot of people have about federally qualified health centers. But I'm telling you, the most some of the most Christian health centers that I've been in have been ones that have been federally funded and federally qualified. And it is doable. It is doable. You do have to have good management practices. Nobody's getting rich. You know, you, we've got doctors that are that are sacrificially serving the poor. They're making maybe half of what they'd make in private practice, in some cases less. And, um, you know, as one of our docs in Augusta, Georgia says, he says, well, we're really poorly paid for doctors, but we're really well-paid missionaries. So, you know, it's, it's doable, but it's not going to happen without a sacrifice. So um, I, I want to I blast through a couple of things here as fast as I can. Um, I want to get to a couple of things, and I don't know how to run this new program that I just got. So, I'm, um, like that was what should have been up there a minute ago. All right. So, I, I, I want to propose uh, seven attributes that I think should be true if your organization is really a Christian is if they're doing real really Christian healthcare. So, understanding that. Some of you guys work in hospitals, in emergency rooms that are about the other end of the spectrum from Christian. Um, and some of you are really trying, you know, I mean, the bottom line is there's, we've got to have goals and we're, we're starting where we start and we're trying to push towards something. So these are, these are just seven things. And, and, and let me just say that there's, um, there's so many different people out there. We've been asking this question for 30 years and CCHF Think of us kind of as the the Wikipedia of Christian healthcare in in the U.S. You know, it's sort of a user defined thing as as we just hear from different people how they would do it. These are seven things that I just want to propose, and the, the first one is um, get a computer that you know how to work. Okay, the first one is having a holistic approach. Okay, I, I think one of the and we're talking about what are the things that are distinct. What are the things that are signs and wonders to the rest of the medical community that we do differently? And, be, and we do it because we're Christian. And the number one, I'd say one thing is having a holistic approach. Treating people the way God made them. Uh, understanding that God made us as integrated beings, body, soul, and spirit. And because we're integrated beings made in the image of God, we understand 
that one aspect of our lives affects all of the others. Third John uh, verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And uh, you can treat somebody's uh, problems all day long, and if you don't address the spiritual issues, they're going to continue to have problems because the bottom line is the world is founded on a spiritual foundation, and so are our lives, regardless of where we stand with God. And so uh, bringing healing and reconciliation to people, body, soul, and spirit, is really, really important. Holistic care is um, one aspect. Second, second mark, I would say, or second attribute, these are not in any particular order, is sacrificial service, which we just mentioned. Um, I just want to read this very familiar passage to you, but I, I like reading it out loud. Uh, how, how many of you are medical students or doctors? Raise your hand. Or, or dentists? You know, okay, a whole lot of you. All right. So, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even on a cross. Now, this is not a value that you're taught in med school or residency, is it? You know, Matt, you're coming to the end of residency, right? And They've put you through hell, right? And, 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 and I'm going to tell you, I hear over and over and over again that the pressure is you're paying your dues now, but it's all going to roll your way as soon as you get out of residency and get on your own. It's going to be your time. You're going to be able to, you're going to, be able to work and make the money and have the big house and you know, all those kinds of things. And, and, uh, and I'll be honest with you, most Christian medical students get sucked into that. I mean, they, you know, they get sucked into um, getting into a, a situation where all of their peers are living in really nice houses and driving really nice cars and they belong to the country club and they have their kids in a nice private Christian school and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But there's a cost associated to every one of those things. And again, you know, quoting my friend down in Augusta, Georgia, who shared with me one time that as he was going through residency and thinking about all the things that they had been scrimping and saving just to survive and that it was all going to get easier for him as soon as residency was over. And he started putting down on paper how much it cost to have two cars, how much it cost to have 3.2 kids in private schools, how much it was going to cost to live in a modest but nice home and all that kind of thing. And then at the bottom of the, of the thing, how many uninsured patients can I see in a month? And there was, a, there was a cost associated to those things. Your ability to serve those that are desperately in need of service, the kind of people Jesus would be spending his time with, is going to require sacrifice. And one of the biggest signs and wonders that you are going to ever have as Christians to the, to the larger medical industry is your willingness to sacrifice personally in order to serve the sickest and most difficult patient population there is or to go on mission trips or wherever it is that you're going to do. Here. 
All right, the third thing is integrity and justice. Psalms 103, actually several places in Psalms. Psalms 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. If you want to know what God's kingdom is built on, God's kingdom is built on these two things, righteousness and justice. And that is repeated numerous times throughout the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. But in Psalms 103, 6 it says, Speaking of God and the nature of his kingdom and of his rule as king, he says, you work righteousness and justice for the oppressed. So while righteousness and justice is important everywhere, as Christians it's really important that we take that mantle up to bring to those who see it the least, who are denied it the most. Um, Micah 6.8, passage everybody knows. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Christian health care must be about integrity and justice, but especially for the poor and the alien. Fourth attribute is to reinforce dignity. One thing that we do as Christians that is unique is that we see people. Um, it says in, in, in Second Corinthians, I think it's Second Corinthians five. It says, it says we used to view one another from a worldly point of view, but we no longer do that anymore. But we view each other in Christ. We understand that, that we that when we came to Christ, He made us new, and He gave us lenses to begin to look at other people through. And uh, and one of those and those lenses are that we begin to understand that there's dignity in every human being, every human life. And that dignity is not because we believe they are God or godly even, but it is based on, I think, three things. One is, marred though we be, we are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. You know, spotted owls and dolphins do not bear the image of God like we, like the worst person in your city does. God has entrusted his image to the worst person in his city, in your city, more than he has the blue whale. Um, I love all those animals, by the way. <laughs> but I'm not a vet. You know, the second reason that, we're, that, we, that we believe that people are digni- have dignity is, is our mutual calling. We have a creational mandate to bring God's rule to the earth, to subdue the earth and rule it on his behalf. And even non-Christians have that same mandate. And they will be held accountable by how well they do, as will, as will we, by how well they do. And when God couldn't find a godly king in Israel to do something right, he raised up a Babylonian king called Cyrus to rebuild the temple and, and to restore the city. And the same thing's true here. God, God, well, God will use the crooked stick if it's the straightest one around, you know. And, and we need to understand that, that each and every person we run across has the same calling that we do to extend God's rule to the ends of the earth, all right? And the third thing is that we have worth because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And maybe this is the most, uh, I don't know, the thing that I that I'm, have the hardest thing wrapping, concept wrapping my mind around, but this is what I know. For a short period of time in my life, I sold real estate, and people would always ask me, what's my house worth? What's my house worth? And the, the short answer is it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. That's it. A thing is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And God paid the highest price of all. His one and most beloved son, he paid for the most disgusting person you know. Which is me, if you, since you've met me today. So, 
the drug dealer and the meth addict and the prostitute that comes into your clinic or ER has amazing value and by virtue of Christ's redemptive work. I want to read a little excerpt from C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. Are y'all, any of y'all familiar with that essay? And towards the end of the essay, Lewis says this. He says, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. But it's hardly possible for him to think too often and too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily upon my back, a load so heavy, so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to fall in worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is mortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and sometimes exploit. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We, we must play. But our merriment must be, that, uh, must be of a kind that is, uh, uh, which is the best kind of merriment, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love just as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now we as Christians, we have to see the least of these in that way to recognize their dignity. I appreciate what Julie shared. She said, you know, I, you know just a big part of her walk and, and expression of, of Christ's dominance in her life is just her, the respect that she shows and, and the dignity that she sees in the people that she serves. Uh, recognizing dignity within the people that we serve includes a commitment on our part to things like partnership and empowerment and education. It's why you take time with patients. It's sharing responsibility for their treatment and their health and, and things like advocacy when they can't speak for themselves. Last two things very quickly. I think they're last three things real quickly. One is this, honoring the presence of God. I've got to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know anybody that I've ever met that talks about this in a clinical setting. But if God is with us, why do we act like we're just normal? And if God is with us, why do we just go around... Every day, as though he's not. Moses said to God in Exodus 33, he said, unless your presence go with us, we don't want to leave. We'll, we'll stay in the wilderness forever rather than go without your presence. And then he said this, he said, how else will we be distinguished from all the other people on the face of the earth except by your presence? So let me ask you, have you ever been in a place or in a meeting, maybe in a conference like this where you just knew the presence of God was there? Have you ever had that experience? It's like, God is in this place. Oh my gosh, God is here. Yeah. So tell me what that felt like. What was the sensation that you felt that made you feel that God was here? That's a question. A, a joy. Okay, that's good. Yeah, what else? Reverence. What does reverence feel like? 
yeah, humility and awaitiness with joy in the mix. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Confidence. Confidence. Speaking from the context of a run a mission hospital for 22 years, yeah. knowing that God will work through the circumstances yeah. to allow us to move forward. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's a great description of what I would say security. You know, for, the, for those of us that don't work in a clinic, you know, there's a sense of being secure and of being frightfully secure in the presence of God. You know, and and the way it, the, that it manifests itself in an ER or in a clinic is in that is in that confidence that God's hand is with your hand. Right. Anything else? When you've been in the presence of God, what does that feel like? What is it, what's that sensation that is so undeniable that you knew that God was there? Peace. Yeah, just an overwhelming sense of peace. Sometimes a sense of just love. Just a, just a sense that, the, that, that that place was saturated with love. Well, I'm going to just tell you, you cannot parody in the words of C.S. Lewis. You cannot parody those things. But if God is with you and promised never to leave you or forsake you, they are there, and you just haven't honored them. And we can recognize those things and honor those things. I've been in clinics before where the people there weren't even as clearly aware as the patients were that there's something different about this place. And you ask what it is, and it's like, I just feel loved here. I just feel secure here. I can share with these people. These, these people are out for my good. And, and, and it's to us then to put a word with that and say, that is a wonder. That's a sign and a wonder. Signs point to something. Wonder, guess what that does? It makes you wonder. And we can put a voice to that and say, what you felt is the presence of God. God is with us. Because God is with me, he's with you, because I'm with you. And there's something really powerful about presence. I think honoring the presence of God is an important thing. And um, we'll, we'll just close with this. Agape love. This is something the world is totally incapable of sharing and something that's exclusively, exclusively Christian and distinct to those that are followers of Jesus. Agape love is unmotivated, value-building love for people, both for those that we serve and for those with whom we serve. Uh, again, I appreciate that at, at Jericho Road, one of the things that the doc notices is that when she hollers for something from one person, somebody else is quick to just say, hey, I'll get that for you, and I'll do their job, and it's, we're all in this together. And there's a sense of being sensitive to one another and, and, and covering one another, and all of those, those things are part of, of agape love. It's not enough. To love medicine, it's not enough to even love helping people. We have to love the people that we help. And that means that when you are with people, you're with people. We treat people. We don't treat diseases and symptoms. We treat people with stories and lives, and they're complex, and they're valuable, and they have at least as much to give to us as we have to give to them. And if we treat people that way, it builds a sense of value in them. My wife is an HIV case manager at a Christian clinic. Her program is exclusively federally funded. 100% of the money that goes to pay for her salary and the work that she does with her patients comes from the federal government. And she prays with every single one of her patients. And she loves it because she says, 
She says, they come into a Christian clinic expecting to be judged because of what they have. And they get to be shocked when I just hug them and love on them and pray for them and show an interest with them and spend time with them and listen to them. And now, when she goes and visits them in their home or when they come into the clinic, before she has an opportunity to say, hey, before you go, let's just pray, they'll reach over and grab her hand and say, "Uh, Miss Victoria, you are going to pray with me today, aren't you? Can I share some things I'd really like for you to pray with? And she gets to pray the blessing of God over them in the name of Jesus. And part of that blessing is that God would open their hearts and their minds and their eyes to see the awesome love that he has and the redemption that he has for them in their lives. And she's led them to Christ and all those things. It's, she, doesn't, she doesn't run an organization. She doesn't even run her department. But in her office, Christian health care has taken place. And so I don't know. I, that's, I, I, our time is up, and I want to I just close with that. I, I want to invite you guys to uh, show up at, a, at my booth and come talk to me or throw some, something at me later if you want to do that. Um, CCHF is going to have a conference in June in, in Nashville, and the theme of our conference this year is what makes Christian healthcare Christian. It's really, honestly, the theme of our conference every year, but... We're just giving it that this year. And so uh, I'd love to have some of your feedback. What do you think makes Christian healthcare Christian? What is it that makes us distinct, that makes us a sign and a wonder and a prophetic demonstration of God's kingdom in the institution of medicine in the United States? So, Father, we just want to commit ourselves again to you and this time to you. I, I want to thank you for the great testimony that's happening in Buffalo, New York, with the people at Jericho Road. And I want to thank you, God, for replicating that testimony across the United States. And I pray, God, that uh, as a result of today, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would have something to work with in our hearts, um, in our feet, and in our hands, God. And, uh, and, Lord, that we would do something dramatic, something distinct, and something that would cause the world to stand up and want to know what you want of them. That, Father, they would say, teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths and that you would receive glory and honor through our efforts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.